Hello and welcome to season three of Picture Blurfect. I'm so excited you're all listening. Welcome to January 2023. It's kind of crazy to think about. Whole new year starts up again. And with that, we have a brand new season of Picture Blurfect. I'm excited to bring to you new guests, new episodes. I'm hoping to do it every other week like usual, trying to get on that schedule. It takes a lot of planning and I'm still a one-woman show over here, so I'm trying to do the best I can, but I'm so excited to talk with you guys about all sorts of topics and and really like learn more about you and what you want to hear. So feel free to reach out to me anytime through email, through Twitter, through Instagram, whatever means of communication that you prefer. I love your feedback. I love hearing from you what you like, what you don't like, and and what we can do um, to make this podcast the best that it can be. Um, and today is just going to be me. We're going to delay things just a little bit because some new guidelines came out this week, and I wanted to dig into that a little bit and and talk with you on on what the guidelines are, what it means, what's in it, what's not in it, um, and all those sorts of things. So this was not planned by any means, but I saw it. I was reading through the guidelines, and I was like, you know. The implications of these guidelines and what it would mean for those with eating disorders and disordered eating and the like and how we train pediatricians specifically, I think that is worth doing an entire episode on. And I heard from many of you that you are interested in hearing more about it. So that's what we're going to do. And the next episode, we're going to start again with with the interview. So it's just going to be me blabbering today. <laughs> and I hope you all are okay with that. But I hope you learned something from these new AAP guidelines that just came out this week. So AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they published its first comprehensive guidance um, that's really intended to highlight evidence that obesity treatment is, quote, safe and effective for ages two and older. Yes, ages two and older. And within those guidelines, it also includes some recommendations for evaluating and treating children that are, quote, overweight and the health concerns that may be associated with being overweight slash obese. Now, from my understanding and from my digging into the literature and previous guidance, what I'm seeing is that the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, this new guidance on childhood obesity, um, which is, again, you know, something they it's the first time they were doing this in 15 years. It's moving away from this what they took this approach termed watchful waiting. Is that what we can call it? So it's more of like delaying treatment as long as possible to see if children outgrow obesity and then moving them towards, you know, a more aggressive and um, full treatment evaluation for obesity and being overweight. Um, and instead, these new guidelines from my understanding and from my take on it. Now, I'm certainly not an expert and I want to preface this by saying I am not an expert, not in eating disorder research. I do not study that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a clinical psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I am someone that has had an eating disorder and this is just my personal take on it. So please do not take this as medical guidance or anything. So I wanted to put that disclaimer out. But it's moving away from this watchful waiting or delaying the treatment. Um, and it seems to be more aggressive. Like it's like right away, let's put these kids on medication. Let's get these kids surgery. And, you know, so everything's kind of moved up. So it, it's a clear shift in what we've been seeing from, you know, guidance and, and pediatrician 
recommendations in the previous years. Now, I will say the AAP is the largest group of an association representing pediatricians in the U.S. So this guidance, you know, comes with a lot of weight and people really look to this community and this organization for their guidance and their expertise. So from I try to read this without looking into what folks on Twitter and what everyone what everyone's opinions was before so that it wouldn't cloud my judgment. I try to do that with with all kinds of things that I that I try to be objective about. Um, but I came to the same conclusion that many folks in the eating disorder community did too, and that it's a little aggressive and it's it can cause a lot more harm um, than what I think they intended. I'm trying to give these folks that are on the committee that wrote these guidelines the benefit of the doubt, and that's not by any means to per- they don't want to promote more harm, but I think they forgot a lot of existing literature, and I think they forgot what the repercussions of these guidances could be and just how prevalent eating disorders and disordered eating is. So what I wanted to do was dig into these guidelines, share a little bit of my perspective. Again, it's not medical advice. I am not a researcher. I am not a scientist in this realm. I studied vision in graduate school. Okay. like I used mice to study the dorsal lateral geniculate nucleus. So this is not that by any means, but I did want to share from my perspective as someone is still in, you know, trying in active recovery and still making active steps towards becoming a better person and a stronger person in my recovery. Um, I wanted to share some some of my thoughts. So what was the purpose of these guidelines? Um, like I said, it was just to give, you know, recommendations on obesity treatment specifically for children. But in the guidelines in the beginning, it says the guidance seeks to answer two questions specifically. Number one, what are effective clinically-based treatments for pediatric obesity? To kind of give an overview. And then second, what is the risk of comorbidities among children with obesities? Like the obesity, sorry. Did I say obesities? Obedies? <laughs> like diabetes? <laughs> Not combining words over here. Comorbidities among children with obesity. So with that said, the first part of the document describes really what leads to obesity and being overweight, and then it moves on to describe how to evaluate and treat it. And this is where the guide- guidelines get a little not great, shall we say. Overall, I would say, and I'm going to say this probably a lot, is this document kind of takes this tone of very... I don't know how else to say, but it's pretty fat phobic. You know, it's very anti-larger bodied. And that's not okay because and I just doesn't. I don't think it takes an appreciation for people come in all shapes and sizes. I recognize the health effects of those that are maybe carrying extra weight, and maybe what that could lead to heart um, and other physiological effects that really need to be addressed. And for that sake, we are all trying to promote health here too. But I don't want to do that at the expense of forgetting what constant messaging of lose weight, lose weight, thinner is better, thinner is better, um, lose weight, diet, diet, like all of that is really damaging and it can cause greater and more profound health effects later in life, especially for kids that are just so vulnerable at this age children and adolescents, like that is just the prime time where your brain is still malleable. Things are changing. Hormones are raging. It's just, I'm, I was surprised by these guidelines. So that's just my take on it. I'm going to say that probably pretty often. So I'm apologize if I'm a little repetitive, but 
The document describes the things that you that pediatricians need to consider when evaluating a patient. Um, so that's the first part of it. Like what's their history, their family patterns, things like do they eat out a lot? Do they eat while looking at a screen? What's the parenting style? There was a lot of, you know, like authoritarian parenting and um, authoritative parenting. Um, and that was really interesting. I really love the psychology behind that because I do think the environment children grow up in really does influence their overall self-image and, and how they view their body. Now, there is within that discussion, a section on evaluating behavioral slash emotional health, things like and I, I'm glad that they pointed this out, is their weight-based bullying. Um, and shout out to Dr. Janet Lidecker because we had an entire episode on that. I don't think this went into the details like we did in the podcast episodes. And I encourage you to check that out. But it, 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 I'm glad it, it's worth mentioning and I'm glad that they did. And then there is a small, small paragraph on the concerns about potential disordered eating patterns, you know, when they're evaluating a patient for potentially being overweight slash obese. And I'm quoting from the from the report, of course. This is all terminology from the report. Now, I was shocked that there was not more discussion about potential disordered eating patterns. Again, it was a really small paragraph. And I was hoping to see some, you know, more resources that they could point clinical care teams in that direction to help equip them with the knowledge and the need to appropriately treat this issue because it's an issue that happens a lot. So I was a little taken aback by that, but he, here's what the short blurb says. Adolescents with obesity may engage in unhealthy practices to lose weight. These practices include skipping meals, using diet pills or laxatives, and inducing vomiting. Therefore, it is important for pediatricians and other primary health care physicians to evaluate the adolescent with overweight or obesity for these and other related behaviors. And here's a kicker to examine the growth chart for evidence of more rapid than expected decline in BMI, body mass index, BMI. I think what frustrates me the most of this, you know, I'm glad that they recognize the issue. It's happening it's happening a lot. I mean, they don't really emphasize it to the extent that I think it's war is warranted. But I'm I'm sad to see that it, they act like BMI is the only determinant that should cause alarm for disordered eating and eating disorders because you can have a normal BMI and still have an eating disorder slash disordered eating. Like, I'm going to say it louder for the people in the back. Am I right? Like you can have a normal BMI and still have an eating disorder slash disordered eating. So using that as the only, you know, metric for causing alarm that, you know, oh, we need to look into this. That's a problem. And I just, I was frustrated. I almost couldn't finish reading the document. This was very early on. So I was like, wait, okay, take a step back. I had to shut my laptop, walk away. <laughs> But I really couldn't believe it, that that was their only recommendation to address this. I'm glad it's in there. I'm glad it's mentioned. But they really just barely scratched the surface on the severity of these behaviors, skipping meals, diet pills, laxatives, vomiting, and all that it can do for a child's health. I know that's not the focus of these guidelines. That's true. But the assumption that eating disorders are primarily occurring in people who are underweight is completely incorrect. And furthermore... It's really irresponsible as a society that as the largest society that represents pediatricians. So it goes on for a couple more sentences stating that doctors and primary care primary care staff, what's wrong with me today? Primary care staff 
should regularly monitor their patients for signs of an eating disorder at annual health checkups. Good. Yes. Glad that's in there. But again, the next sentence, (laughs) the guidelines state the following, quoting, pediatricians should evaluate weight, height, and BMI by using age and sex appropriate charts, assess menstrual status in girls, and recognize the changes in vital signs that may signal the presence of an eating disorder. So again, I'm really troubled by, those are all really, you know, key signs, yes, but I'm troubled by all of this just undertone, this underlying assumption that this document continually makes and conveys that BMI is the sole indicator of an eating disorder, that for someone to lose their menstrual cycle, that's the one sign that you need to determine if someone has an eating disorder. Because there are so many patients out there struggling, you know, larger bodied individuals included that have an eating disorder. And according to this document, would not only get overlooked for eating disorder treatment, the doctor would even encourage dieting and losing weight because maybe their BMI is higher than average and therefore they should get, quote, more exercise or eat, quote, healthier. So that that was my frustration. We're just getting started. Um, but yeah, so in reading this document, digesting all of this, it really just further underscored the lack of awareness pediatricians have the lack of training. We really need better training for pediatricians because it starts so young. And if this is the guidelines that they're having, I don't want to say that there's no hope, but I'm really discouraged. So then the guidelines get into the evaluation. That was, of course, just like the history and you know the, the, the first part of, of treating potentially overweight and, and obese children. Then they get into evaluation and treatment of, of a child and an adolescent and that's overweight slash obese. They point out and discuss for several pages the comorbidities associated with obesity, like how to treat and diagnose those conditions. Things like abnormal lipids, glucose dysregulations, abnormal liver enzymes, et cetera. So it got a very, very sciencey in medical terms. And then they make a point to say it's really important to treat the weight aspect concurrently with any comorbidities, which is fair. And it, the same is true for eating disorders. Like treatment should not only focus on weight, and it's never just about weight. You have to address potential depression, anxiety, potentially obsessive compulsive disorder. We had an episode on that. Things that we've talked about at length. Um, all right. So so that's uh, that's like introducing the topic. Then we get to a section. I'm For what it's worth, I'm having the report in front of me and I'm like, I have had things highlighted and I'm going through my notes and everything. So then we get into a section titled Evidence-Based Pediatric Obesity Treatment Reduces Risks for Disordered Eating. So reading that title, I was like, ooh, this should be good. It starts off by pointing out that in the field of pediatric nutrition and in in the treatment of nutrition and eating disorders, there are concerns that diagnosis and treatment of obesity may inadvertently place excess attention on eating habits, body shape, and body size, and lead to disordered eating patterns as children grow into adulthood. Yes, it's true. Then it says, quote, the literature refutes this relationship, however, end quote. Okay, I'm going to continue. The section notes that supervised weight management programs decreases current and future eating disorder symptoms, including bulimic symptoms, emotional eating, binge eating, drive for thinness for up to six years after treatment. Okay, so then my immediate question is, what about after that? Anyways, so then they make this case that 
primary care-based and intensive health behavior lifestyle programs are geared towards increasing healthy food consumption, participating in physical activity for enjoyment and self-care, and improving overall self-esteem. All right. And the paragraph ends by stating that like a structured and professionally run pediatric obesity treatment is associated with reduced eating disorder prevalence, risk, and symptoms. I am a little skeptical. Now, so that that line that says the literature refutes this relationship, I didn't, you know, for what it's worth, I did not dig into all of the references that they believe, you know, help refute and help their argument. But I am skeptical. Like what the literature and data supposedly says, and for the kids' sake, I do hope it's true. But I I'm just skeptical because I do think that there is this excess attention on eating habits, body shape, and body size, and it causes people to really develop disordered eating. And, and for some, eating disorders, and we've seen time and time again that eating just like a diet can lead more often than not to an eating disorder. That's how it started with me. So it's just, I'm not sure what I hope that it's true. So maybe I should do my due diligence and look into this literature, but I am very skeptical. Now, that's not the bulk of what these recommendations says. That was just one line. Let's dig into, here's where it gets problematic, the treatment plans that they describe. I'm going to skip over motivational interviewing. That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty much like general therapy, like focusing on the patient, engaging with them, making sure that they're motivated to change. And that's all very good. I thought that was a good section. Then they have a section describing intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment, which they define as the foundational approach to achieve body mass reduction or the attenuation of excessive weight gain in children. So this involves, quote, visits of sufficient frequency and intensity to facilitate sustained healthier eating and physical activity habits, end quote. Typically, not just with the patient, but it's also with the family. They really do emphasize it. It takes, you know, the entire family to really make this work. And according to the guidelines, the most effective intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment delivers 26 26 or more hours of face-to-face family-based counseling on nutrition and physical activity over at least a three to 12-month period for children six years and older. It says that the number of hours is directly proportional, this is important, directly proportional to the likelihood a child will experience a reduction in BMI. So 26 hours was that threshold that they've observed in studies, but interventions that delivered over 52 hours of contact over three to 12 months, demonstrated the most consistent and significant reduction in BMI and in comorbidities. So things like cardiometabolic comorbidity improvements, the cardiovascular system improved and all of that. So 26 hours was a threshold, but over 52 was probably the goal where the most consistent and significant um, improvements they saw. So they do that for several other aspects of this treatment, why it needs to be family-based, why face-to-face meetings are more effective, on and on. Those were, those were good. Then on page 53, uh, there is a paragraph that starts off, there is no evidence that obesity treatments harm patients' quality of life, quote. Later on, there is a sentence that states, quote, more study on treatments impact on mental health studies is needed. However, Few studies examined mental health impact. Although none showed worsening mental health, 
All of the studies excluded subjects who had established mental health disorders at baseline, end quote. So there's a glaring gap in the field for sure. They did not look at those who had, you know, underlying mental health disorders. I'm assuming that's those even with depression or anxiety, they were not included in this, which that's a lot of children and adolescents that they're missing. And I hope that there are pediatricians and other clinical researchers out there that are prioritizing the evaluation of mental health during these treatments, because this stuff can have lasting impact. So I thought that was just crazy that there's, they make this claim that there's no evidence that obesity treatments harm patients' quality of life, but we need more research to really determine that for sure. So I don't know. I was a little frustrated to read that paragraph. Like everything needs to be evidence-based, especially for our children and adolescents and for things that are so impactful later on in life. So I'm just, uh, I was just like, oh, but you know, we, we don't have enough studies. And for the studies that we looked at, we exclude subjects who had, you know, a baseline mental health disorder. Okay. Then the very next paragraph, opening sentence, quote, the prevalence of eating disorders is not well characterized in patients participating in obesity treatment, but disordered eating patterns may be more common among youth with obesity compared with youth at a healthy weight, end quote. So they encourage doctors, you know, later on in the paragraph, they encourage the doctors to really monitor before, during, and after for any presence of disordered eating, as well as, you know, any greater than expected weight change. But what do they consider greater than expected? Number one, that's me talking. Like, do they have, there were no, you know, there was no explanation. And what about things other than weight dropping that could be alarming? So I'm just afraid that these treatment programs and these guidelines inadvertently demonize certain foods in an effort to to treat healthy eating and for children and and then the children inadvertently develop these fears around certain foods and the only thing that doctors have to go off of is well are they losing too too much weight too fast is their bmi dropping too fast like that's the only indication of quote disordered eating and eating disorders and that's you know, it said in the previous paragraph, we don't really, you know, have enough research on mental health treatments and status within obesity treatments. So I'm just really afraid that they are recommending these very rigorous, very aggressive treatment programs without really taking into account, not only, you know, there's a lack of data, but the fact that this really could have lasting impacts on on children and the only thing they're going off of is a number on the scale. It's just, it's just too much. <sighs> All right. So what about medicine and surgery? Here's where it gets really interesting. So the guidelines, of course, emphasize that if it gets to the point of needing weight loss medication, it should be done in parallel with behavioral treatments. That's, of course, you're going to get um, the best outcome with when you do everything concurrently. So for patients as young as 12, 12 years old, Pediatricians and other primary healthcare physicians, quote, should offer adolescents 12 years and older with obesity weight loss pharmacotherapy. Yeah, 12 years old should have weight loss medicine. For adolescents 13 and older with severe obesity, and again, this is what they determine as severely obese is again based on BMI. Pediatrician should offer referral for metabolic and bariatric surgery. From what I understand, so 13 years, 13 years old, as young as 13 years old, they can get surgery. 
this bariatric surgery. From what I understand, this is younger than what was previously recommended. It used to be patients 16 and older could get a referral for bariatric surgery, but now it's down to 13. There is not a whole lot of, in a way of explanation for why they lowered it. It says a little farther down, in contrast to earlier practices of watchful waiting or following a stage approach to intensifying treatment, the guidelines support early treatment at the highest level of intensity appropriate for and available to the child. So, young, hit them with the most intense treatment possible, which includes surgery. So it continues. It is hoped that pediatricians and other primary healthcare practitioners, health systems, community partners, payers, and policymakers will recognize the significance and urgency outlined by the guidelines to advance the equitable and universal provision of treatment of the chronic disease of obesity in children and adolescents. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much what is in the guideline. So I kind of went over, you know, it, it goes over the history, how to evaluate a child, what are their recommendations for, you know, behavioral treatment, and then what are their recommendations for medication and surgery. Medication can be as young as 12 years old, ages 13 and older can get a referral for metabolic and bariatric surgery. Now, I didn't go through all of the details. This is like a hundred page document. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, disclaimers and things that doctors need to be watchful for. I'm just giving my personal take on it from the eating disorder perspective as someone that has been through you know a terrible eating disorder and I'm looking at it from that lens but from what I understand these recommendations seem really aggressive than what's been practiced in previous years and from the previous recommendations which again was 15 years ago it referenced you know this watchful period, the staged approach, which is what doctors were recommended to do up until now. And instead, as you read, as you heard from that quote I read, early treatment at the highest level of intensity appropriate. It's not a lot, which means, you know, 13-year-olds can get referred for bariatric surgery. And we know from evidence that these children, more often than not, when they go through these surgeries, they're going to gain back that weight and oftentimes more than what they what they lost. So I don't know. I don't know what this could be, but I know that people are not happy, especially within this community. So overall, you know, the tone of this document is, is really disappointing. I don't know. And I don't think it was the intention, but it comes across as really fat phobic, right? There's this undertone throughout the whole thing that thinner is better. Weight loss is good. And there's absolutely no side effects to losing too much weight, which is so not true. And there's a line early in the document, and I highlight it because my eyes got really wide reading it. It's, quote, it is difficult to make or sustain healthy behavior changes in an obscenogenic, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I should have looked it up before I started recording, <laughs> Obeso, obesogenic environment that promotes high energy intake unhealthy dietary choices, and sedentary behavior. Really? That's who? Because from where I'm sitting, I'm flooded, flooded with messages about dieting, about making sure I know that carbs are bad, that I get off the couch, and I exercise all the time, and I burn. I have to burn those calories to really earn my meals. 
So I really disagree with that statement. I really disagree with that statement. We don't live in an environment that promotes obesity and high energy intake and yeah, go eat your Taco Bell because it's good for you. No, if anything, there is dieting messaging all the time. I think today I saw like three Nutrisystem commercials because we're in freaking January and everyone's trying to lose weight. It's it's absurd. It's absurd. So I was really offended when I read that that um, that line. So they completely excluded the perspective of those with eating disorders and disordered eating. So I was very distraught to see that in there. And more importantly, I think a big problem with this document is they really don't appreciate how truly complex weight is in general. Like there are so many factors that can influence body size, many of which for the record are out of our control. And as doctors, as a society that represents pediatricians, I would want them to know that. Okay. It addresses some of it. Things like food insecurity. We had a whole episode on that. Check it out with Dr. Carolyn Becker. It was amazing. Things like socioeconomic status, things like how, oh, inherently racist our society is. And that can actually, you know, inadvertently lead to people developing eating disorders disproportionately. Why are we like that? There just wasn't enough of a discussion on those factors. And I don't think you can publish a document that's supposed to be comprehensive without taking those things into account. So I'm really afraid that weight loss medications and surgery are recommended too soon and for individuals that are just too young. Yes, it's true they need to fulfill a certain number of hours of therapy and they have to hit that certain threshold to be eligible. Like I think it's 26 hours at minimum of this intensive behavioral therapy. That's a okay, that's good. But 13 years old for surgery, 12 for med- for weight loss medicine, what happens when they stop and they regain the weight? What if they have to go back on the medicine, you know, and do this, you know, weight cycling back and forth, back and forth, back and forth? How is that healthy? How is that good for our children who are so in this position of change? You know, adolescence is such a big period of change. And then you're going to introduce this really aggressive form of treatment that can really just backfire and cause even worse health problems. I just, I just don't know. And I'm sorry to say, but I am not confident in our pediatrician workforce to be able to appropriately talk about these things without coming across as rude and offensive to these young kids. Because like it or not, we live in a fat phobic society. And there is they talk a little bit about weight stigma and how we should maybe switch to using more person-first language with, with this topic. So things like a child with excess weight instead of an obese child. I'm not so sure that's going to help. You know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe, um, but that was my initial reading of that. I was like, good effort, but uh, I don't think so. I just don't think pediatricians are trained correctly, and we need to fix that first before they even start approaching our children and our future generation on this topic that is so sensitive and important. What about after surgery? Like, I know they note that it takes, you know, those with bariatric surgery need a lot of nutrition monitoring after the fact, but I'm not sure that teenagers are able to do that given the stage of life that they're in, the commitments that they have, the the changes that they have to go through. Like, what if a child has to move? Like, they go through that a lot and switch schools, and that's a lot of stress on a child. And 
are there any recommendations for that? It's just, it's, they're not at a point where they are stable enough where we can introduce such aggressive treatment. And I don't know if this these guidelines came out because they're like, oh, well, this watchful waiting, these the stage approach that we were taking for treating obesity and those um, that are overweight is is not working, and we need something more aggressive. But do we have evidence to suggest that it's going to work with more aggressive treatment? And that I can't answer. I just don't know. And we don't have enough evidence looking into how these treatments actually affect the mental health of those that are participating. That's a problem. And I I will say it again, we have a fat phobic society and we are training these pediatricians that do not know how to talk to young kids that are struggling with this. You think they're going to open up with their struggles to someone that's really rude and offensive and doesn't know how to talk to them about weight? No, of course not. So, I'm just, I'm very upset. And as someone that has been to a lot of doctors, listen, like I've been to a lot of doctors and when I was young too, and it was before I even admitted that I had a problem, even now when I disclose to doctors that I have a history of an eating disorder, they still offend me. I tell them, I don't want to step on the scale. I don't want to see the number. Can I step on backwards? If you absolutely need to know my weight, which I'm going into talk about something that's not really weight related. If you absolutely need my weight, can I step on backwards? And people have told me to my face, no, are you ridiculous? Get on the scale. Like really, I'm not kidding. I had a doctor. I needed a primary care physician here when I moved to the DC area and, you know, went through the usual, you know, vitals check and all of that. He took my blood. He was like, oh, your blood's kind of dark. You must be really out of shape. Are you kidding me? Number one, you don't say that to someone. And dude, number two, and I did point this out. I was like, you did take blood out of the vein and it's deoxygenated blood. So yeah, it's going to be dark. And he was just like, well, well, he was like, well, where did you get your degree? And I was like, I have a PhD in anatomical sciences and neurobiology. Thank you. You know, it's just, it's things like that. And so, but now we're, almost encouraging doctors to be like, yep, you're overweight. You need to go through this. You need to go on this medicine. What about the side effects of these medicines? When I was going through migraines, I was prescribed a, you know, nothing was working, absolutely nothing. And this was before my eating disorder started. Nothing was working and ultimately went to this neurologist. I will never forget him. Uh, He asked me, well, how fast can you run a mile? I was like, I don't really run. Um, I play outside, you know, but I don't really like, I, I was like 11 years old. Okay. And he was like, well, if you can't run a mile in under seven minutes, then that's a problem. And I was like, seven minutes. Do you know how much that stuck with me? Because that started my exercise addiction. That started my running for three, four five hours a day on killing myself to try and meet this metric that this idiot doctor thought I had to abide by. And not only that, he put me on some medicine that um, he said, you know, it's fairly new to the market, but I think it will help with your pain. And that's all I wanted. I wanted something to help with the pain. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't 
I was, it was the, the worst migraines of my entire life for months on end, just would not go away. And so I was really desperate and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try this new medicine. And he said, it was just approved by the FDA, but you know, that's, that's all I really know about it. So he put me on it. He said, you know, one side effect is loss of appetite, but he was like, you, you could afford to lose a few pounds. So I think that'll be okay. And it's, stuck with me, you guys. Not only did he tell me I was you know, out of shape because I couldn't run a mile under seven minutes, but he said I could lose a few pounds and that this medicine could help. And I was 11. I remember on the car ride home, my mom, you know, like I remember the road we were on. I remember, you know, the stoplight we were at, everything. And she was like, you know what he said back there about your weight and how it's going to decrease your appetite? And she was like, you know, you don't need to lose weight and you shouldn't lose weight, right? I'm like, I know, mom, I know, but it's my mom, you know, and I'm this kid back then. I'm like, she's my mom. She has to say that kind of thing. So, you know, I love it. I was like, oh, it's supposed to decrease my appetite. I'm going to slowly stop eating. Then a few pounds came off and people gave me compliments. And that's the, how the vicious cycle begins. <sighs> so I'm worried that he's not the only one, you guys. He's not the only doctor out there that's saying these things to young children. And now we have these guidelines out there that's actually saying, yeah, it's a good thing to say these things. I'm just really worried. And I wish there were guidelines on how to approach the topic about obesity and, and overweight, because I understand that there are health effects. And the end goal is to promote healthy lives for all of our kids. So they leave long they live long, healthy, fulfilling lives and are happy. But I don't think this is the answer. And I don't think being more aggressive earlier in development is the answer. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't have expertise in this area by any means. There are so many people that have fascinating, amazing Twitter threads on these guidelines exactly. And what are the glaring gaps of it? Because I've only scratched the surface. This is just my personal take. I want to talk more about how inherently racist our society is and how that really contributes and how socioeconomic status really does contribute to these quote obesity problem that we have. Why don't we tackle that? Why don't we talk about that? Why don't we talk a little bit? Why don't you just dedicate more than one paragraph on weight stigma? That's, again, I know I come from a very small niche community that talks about these issues, but the fact that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disease, if that's not alarm bells enough for these doctors and for the American Academy of Pediatrics, then I don't know what else we can do to, to, to raise the alarms. So I'm getting all worked up again. <laughs> I gave this spiel to my husband already and he was just, you know, nodding and nodding and he was trying to play devil's advocate and say, you know, well, from a doctor's perspective and he was like, I'm totally agreeing with you, but, and trying to let me see it from the other side. But in the end, you know, completely agrees with me and he knows my entire history and how the journey that I've been on with, with doctors and our just our society in general. And, you know, is it not enough that we go to a restaurant nowadays and we see the calories, you know, just glaring in our faces, you know, that's in font larger than what the actual meal is. Like, come on. It's just really frustrating. But those are the guidelines. They came out just this week's new uh, from, you know, the first, 
guidelines that have come out in 15 years. I hope this little rundown was helpful. I hope this perspective was helpful. It's basically just me ranting about it. But I did want to provide a little bit of a perspective on what they were, what was included, what the you know overall recommendations were, and maybe you know what the implications could be for these children in in our in our community. And I'm I'm really worried it's going to cause more harm than they intended. And I don't know if they know that. And maybe we'll come out with a statement, you know, with maybe supplementary guidance. I encourage them to do so. If anyone from the American Academy of Pediatrics is listening, I encourage you to come out with some supplementary guidance with additional evidence-based treatments, with additional advice for pediatricians on how to talk about weight, the importance of weight stigma in our society, and how to avoid potential harms from this guidance that they're seeking. If they're not going to go back and say, oh, maybe, you know, we, we should have rethought this, you know, 12 and 13 years old number, you know, then put out some supplementary guidance. Um, but, you know, what's my opinion going to do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's what this episode is going to be. Again, we're, we'll be back to interviews for Picture Blur Effect on the next episode. I'm really excited to have some very exciting guests. I can't wait to talk to them and um, hear more about their research. We're going to keep pushing forward, guys, and get this message out on the importance of researching eating disorder, finding out what's the best treatment, how can we promote a society that is more inclusive because um, these guidelines certainly aren't. And how can we just be better people in the end and just love one another and just move away from this emphasis on weight and size? I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you know BMI being the sole indicator of what healthy is uh, because there are people in small, medium, large bodies that have eating disorders. And I will say that again and again. And by excluding and forgetting those groups of people is really just doing a disservice to your profession as a pediatrician. So I'm going to end it there. Oh, I wanted to, I did want to tell everyone, you know, completely new topic. Tried a new recipe. I know some of you really like hearing about the new recipes that I tried. Um, I tried, it was a, what was it again? It's cooling in the fridge right now, and I just can't wait to dig into it. It is dark chocolate peppermint French silk pie. This is the first pie I've ever made from scratch. So I made it whole crust. Crust is not easy, you guys. Like, that's a whole thing. Oh, my gosh. Like, no wonder everyone makes cakes instead. I like cake more, I think, just because I prefer chocolate. But I found a chocolate pie, so I was like, all right, I'll give it a go. Oh, I can't wait. It smelled so good. And when I was tasting the batter, it tasted like the Andes mints. I think they give them out at Olive Garden. I don't know. I haven't been to Olive Garden in a while. That chain's kind of going downhill. Anyway, um, Andy's Mints. Oh, so, 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 so good. So I will give you an update on how that tastes. Can't wait to dig in. Um, and that's that's pretty much all I have. And I hope this entire episode, you were reminded that you know those numbers and that number on the scale, the size of your clothing really is not indicative of who you are, your worth, and how much you matter in this world because you matter so much. And I hope if you're listening and you're thinking about reaching out and getting support, please do so. You are not alone. You have a whole community behind you cheering for you. I will be your biggest champion. If you need help, please ask me. I will be happy to point you in the right direction. I hope this episode, you know, you were like nodding. You were like, yes, I don't know what you were doing when you were listening to this episode, but I hope it was useful. Can't wait to come back um, on the next time and bring to you brand new interviews with some exciting researchers in the field. Um, so that's all I have, guys. Until next time, talk to you later. 